Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the I Love You Insert Name podcast. My name is Erica, and I'm your host recording from my couch in New Orleans, Louisiana. On this week's episode, we are doing it quarantine style over Zoom with my dear friend Stephen, who's a playwright and creative in Dallas, Texas. Stephen shares a bit about his state of mind in light of this pandemic, as well as his general coping strategies for the stressors that are all things millennial. And most of all, he'll make you laugh. A lot. This episode is a bit longer than our normal episodes, but considering how many of us are stuck at home on our couch, I figured a little extra content couldn't hurt. I can't wait for you to hear this extra-length feature interview with Stephen. isolated or are you able to like see people and still have contact with the human race i have one buddy who lives next door who i've been able to see pretty often um but largely no have not seen people but i have been like catching up with people more regularly on the phone texting people all that stuff so I think, you know, my human interaction has still existed. It's just not been person to person. Right. Um, And have you been feeling the effects of that at all? Because I know for me, I am constantly battling uh, depression and mental health stuff. And being isolated is definitely not a helpful uh, state of being when I'm when I'm looking to stay healthy mentally. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been weird. I've been living with my I've been living by myself for the past two years or so. So I've kind of gotten used to just long periods of not being around people, not having that interaction, but it has started to have its toll because, you know, when I was going to work regularly, when I was, you know, just having the normal amounts of social interaction, that was kind of covering that base. But now it's just been cut down to zero. And so, yeah, it's, you start to get a little stir crazy. Yeah, it, uh, I'm not in a bad place with it just yet, but it's definitely starting to, you know, kick in, like, when will this be over? Yeah. And so what are, do you have any coping strategies right now to help you through it? Like, what is it that you're working on or doing besides, you know, calling people on the phone? Is there anything else that you've been practicing or reigniting? So I've made it a point to stay busy during this time because I've been Ubering to pay the bills. That's what I've been doing. And that's just not here now. And Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to keep in the same routine that I've been doing, waking up, doing the same things and still putting in a full days of work. So do you just go and go and sit in the car? (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. Uh, No, no. it's, It's actually been weird. I tried driving, you know, just to the store to grab something the other day. And I was like, how do I do this again? But I have been uh, working on some animated cartoon stuff that I had been doing like a year back and then stopped for, you know, a bunch of different reasons. So it's been nice to have that sort of long form project to just do, you know, for six hours a day uh, and feel accomplished and feel like you're still working and feel like you're still, you know, and maybe that's an American thing to be like. I'm forced to stay at home, but I I really feel like I got to work, you know. I need to still be productive. (laughs) Right, right. Now, I've been wondering that this whole time, if that's just being American and that's that ingrained sense of, you know, I got to work, you know. How we define purpose is really specific in our country, I think. And it definitely has to do with how much we can produce and achieve. And I, I feel you on that. I 
sometimes I, <laughs> I mean, I'm a workaholic to begin with, but this, this free time or downtime, more downtime than I'm used to has been filled with extra projects and, you know, recording extra podcast episodes and making more contact with people. And I feel like, I feel like I don't deserve to take a breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you feel guilty for taking a pause and just stepping back. Like, and and it, I don't know if it's supposed to be that way. You know, I think that it would probably do us all good to just take, you know, a week staycation and not do anything. But, yeah, you just you know, you think, oh, I should be doing something with this time. I should be, you know, doing the projects I should be doing, learning how to cook, learning another language. You know, people have their own sort of filling in the the void activities. But, you know, I, I also just, my day of the week that was sort of sacred always was Saturdays. You know, I would work sometimes Sundays, do a little half day here and there, but like, I will never do anything on a Saturday. I will play on my phone, watch Netflix, do whatever I want all day guiltlessly. And I think that's kind of important too, to have a day where you're like, no, this is my day. I do whatever I want. That's healthy. I wish I could say the same. I definitely am still working on figuring out how to give myself the gift of stopping. And I, I think that at least for my community in general, you know, the people that I surround myself with tend to be achievers, sometimes to a fault. And so I think that everyone is just kind of feeling the same craziness of, of wondering like, when, A, when is this going to be over and why isn't it over already? Which is so very uh selfish but also just feeling like they have to find they have to find a new purpose they have to find a new a new reason to be getting up every day and getting dressed and doing something if anything whether it's like i i think my cousin said she was maria condoing her entire house and like i have somebody who's <laughs> who's like starting a new a new project and you know you said that you're you're restarting a project do you what what is the project that you're working on can you talk more about it or is it a, a top secret mission oh uh, no i i'm not uh too secretive about it i i guess i might have been when i first started but it's uh it's just a cartoon and it's all animals no people and it's very naturalistic, so all the animals are just people, and the the circumstances, the events are not extraordinary at all. The only thing that is sort of removed from reality is the fact that they're all animals. And so I kind of have this idea of doing it as like a show for millennials, you know? So all the characters are depressed and poor <laughs> and you know, sort of wandering aimlessly through life. So us. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think that any of the characters are going through anything that's unrelatable to our entire generation because there is this sort of apathy, you know, like we have to go through the motions, but you're probably not going to receive a livable wage at the end of it you know, you'll probably never pay back your student loans. You know, there's just, yeah, that sort of mellow apathy that comes along with being a young person nowadays. You know, the climate's fucked, but you still got to go to work tomorrow. The climate's and... fucked, but supposedly this pandemic has been really helpful for the environment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You know, I mean, I'm looking at my personal impact and it's like, well, I was going out and Ubering a half a tank of gas into the air every day. And now I'm just not at all, you know, sort of my carbon impact has reduced a lot. No one's really going out more than they have to. It slowed down the parasitic nature of humans. Yeah, I mean, 
it I've seen, you know, of course, a lot of memes about it, but I think this is a really good time for humanity to go sit in its room and think about what it did. You know, like that that kind of feels like Mother Nature telling us to, you know, take some quiet time and Stop reflect. It. Yeah. Uh, Are we grounded? Is the human race grounded, Stephen? I think so. I think that's what's going on, you know. And it really took a plague to do it, which makes sense, because that's the one thing that, you know, what are we going to do? We can't nuke microorganisms. It's a different type of war. It really is. Do you think you're going to do an episode about this on your cartoon or something that touches on it at all? I actually just wrote a first draft today of uh, it addresses the quarantine at least but I'm hoping that eventually... It's a gentle reference. Yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that as a society, as a world, eventually this will be over. That is my hope, and I think that that's... <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> you know, that, that seems attainable. I don't know. I don't know. It's early on. But, you know, I don't want to make too much quarantine-specific content just because hopefully this will be over sooner than later, you know. It may be two months, it may be six months, it may be a year and a half, you know. <sighs> yeah. Do you want to tell everyone our background and how you came to this podcast? I'm very curious to hear your version of the story. Uh, so, I mean, I've known you for... Oof, it's... 15 years ish at this point we met something like yeah that. in yeah. middle school and i did not like you you did not like me i was awful to you and you were so hard-headed that you would not be awful to me back and that bothered me um and i spitefully ran for class president against you just so you wouldn't win and won and we've since likened that to Donald Trump stealing the election from Hillary. And I think it was very comparable in hindsight. Considering that you ran a Family Guy campaign? Yeah, it's, it was comparable. <laughs> yeah, I basically invented memes. You did, you did, you really did. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's what middle schoolers like is family guy and i mean i still like it now don't get me wrong but oh so do i now i do now that i don't have a giant stick up my ass i, I also can <laughs> talk about all the things that are silly that make me laugh because i mean i feel like i feel like that version of that part of the story is a little hard on you erica was no no peach like i was a really controlling and aggressive closeted lesbian who was really angry at everything all the time so <laughs> and and i was a republican so yeah 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 at that at that time you were a republican <laughs> yeah but then you know we got really close in high school and i think we've been pretty close friends ever since like you're one of the few people i still talk to regularly or you know as regularly as it gets Right. Yeah, I uh, I think one of my favorite things about our friendship was when you told me that you had to come out to me. And I met you at the waterfront in Clematis. And we sat down and we were facing the ocean and we were on a swing and you told me you had to come out to me. And I was like, okay, great. Steven's gay. That's fine. Everybody in my class is gay. But you are not, in fact, gay. You came out to me. <laughs> As a Democrat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a Taoist yeah. vegetarian, I think, is what happened. And that that was so much more gratifying than you telling me that you were gay. Like that is all I ever wanted was you to was for you to accept that you were not in fact a red Republican. Really, really right wing Republican at the time. Although that has a different connotation now than it did when we were in sixth grade. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I don't know if I would be on the Trump train 
even back then because that's you know fascist but yeah no (laughs) you were i think you were just a real true republican and i don't know if you were actually ever really a republican or if you just like to be the opposite of what everyone else was and at our high school and middle school i mean everybody was pretty much a liberal queer artist (laughs) so you being one of the few the contrarian Who? factor probably played a part for sure. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, that's not something you've ever really lost. It just shows up in different ways no. now. Yeah, now it's all y'all moderates don't get it. Bernie's the way to go or a progressive in general. I was on Team Warren for a second there and then the numbers were not on Team Warren. So I yeah. was on Team Warren too. I was really sad. But then I switched. I've been fighting a lot with my mom about that because she's she's a Biden supporter by default. And she just seems to think that, like, there's no better option at this point. And I'm like, well, if everybody in your age group decides that there's no better option, then that's who's going to win. But we do still have an option. And I feel like I'm breaking this down for someone who doesn't who doesn't want to listen anymore. And that is frustrating. It's really frustrating. So you mentioned the creative projects that you're working on right now, but I've known you to be a playwright for many, many years. And I believe that that was part of your, you know, studies in school. And so where are you in that process right now in your creative life? So I have done acting for most of my life, but I made a decision after college to not do acting anymore, at least not on a regular basis, and I decided to do playwriting. And I've had a few opportunities since graduation to do a bunch of short plays, and I've had a few long, you know, full-length plays produced, or I've had one, and I had a staged reading of something I co-wrote with uh, our buddy, Josh, And so this year, so far, I kind of made a decision to, as my New Year's resolution, take more time to not get caught up in the distractions when I have the time. And so that's been an on and off struggle. But all that to say, I was really productive in January and wrote the first draft of a full-length play and it's three acts long but only 54 pages you know the acts are like 20 minutes a piece because the whole thing runs about 70 minutes right now it's really pretty slow um, because it's naturalist and because one of my theories about theater is you know you come to the theater to feel At least that's what I believe you come to theater to do, is to feel. And I feel that feeling comes from sort of thwarted expectations or just change in general. So if you're in one stasis right now, feeling is, you know, the thing changing from one thing to another, changing from content to happy, changing from happy to sad, like that is feeling, that's sort of the orchestral composition of feeling and so I try and use that as an underlying theory of you know what is the point of what I'm doing when I'm writing plays like what is the point of theater what what are we coming here to do what what does this do to the human spirit and so that's kind of why I leaned into naturalism for this most recent one because you know, I think there's a lot of feeling in that everyday life that just, you know, you have that optimism for the day when you're drinking your cup of coffee in the morning, you know, and I think it's part of putting that on stage for people is just to, you know, to a certain degree, validate that experience and that feeling and that just, you know, that normalness or that normativeness of that morning routine you know that part of the human experience which I yeah you know and the and the complexity within that because 
when you're having that first cup of coffee in the morning, there's a lot. You know, you're thinking about the day. You're trying to forget about yesterday. You're trying to get caffeinated. You know, you're trying to embrace a little bit of silence because the rest of the day is probably going to be really noisy and busy, you know. But then it's also like, I don't think the problems that we experience in most plays, most theater, most film, the problems that those characters experience are really the biggest problems that we as humans experience on a day-to-day basis in real life you know like what what happens when you stop loving someone you know like how does that happen is it an immediate thing is it a months-long process is it you know sort of a peak a bell curve of loving someone and there's always going to be that peak you know and I think those are the questions that really those are the ones that interest me. You know, I don't really care about, I don't know, someone murdering their entire family. And it's not like that. It's just, that's not, that's not what most people are facing. You want to explore the universality of the human condition. Definitely. You know, because that's, that's the stuff that I think keeps us up at night. You know, I think that's the hardest questions that we have to ask is like, who am I? What am I doing? What is my relationship to everyone and everything else around me? And then you can add in some of the the extra layers, the societal layers. It's like, what is all of that, all of that human stuff within an American context in 2020? You know, right. Within. And then also adding on things like race or gender, sexual identity, you know, different things like that. Or are you really not looking to weave and web into those minutia? So there's a time and a place for sure. And I think that like absolutely it's something that needs to be talked about. For this one in particular, this particular play, it's not about that, you know. But there are moments where that comes through. You know, you are dealing with these universal, these human problems, and then all of a sudden something from the real world comes in there. You know, you get a call about your student loans, right? And that completely just takes everything back in. Or you see just this small instance where it's like, oh my God, my whiteness got me out of a really sticky situation. And like, I know if I was not white, that would have ended entirely differently. You know, so there's glimpses of that stuff in there, too. And like, that's definitely something that I keep writing about. Like the play I co-wrote with Josh is it deals with a lot of that. You know, we were doing a modernization of the TV show Dallas. But instead of doing what the actual show did, which is. 90% white people and all of the non-white people are in servant class positions, like not even working class, like they're the maids, servant class. And so we subverted that and over half the cast was women. Uh, The majority of the cast was people of color. And that's because the majority of the characters were people of color. And it wasn't something slapped on there. It wasn't something to you know, exhibit our wokeness to the world. It was just like the city of Dallas is a third white, a third black, a third Latino, roughly, you know. So maybe the show that calls itself Dallas should represent. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then we talk about those issues and not, you know, try not to be preachy with it, but, you know, if you're black, you're five times as likely to get arrested for weed. Like that is a real thing. And when you look at that statistic specifically in Dallas, it's even worse than five to one, you know? And so it's important to acknowledge that stuff because a lot of, there's a certain sect of white people who will only listen to other white people on this issue, you know? There's certain sect of people who only care about this stuff if you put it right in their faces, 
you know, and say, this is the problem, you know, you are the problem, you're contributing to this problem by not acknowledging it, not, you know, doing something actively to stand for justice in this instance. Yeah, neutrality is a, is an action. Right, right. And I think ignorance is kind of, I don't want to say inexcusable because you have to learn more. Like, I can't claim that I was born knowing everything I know now. No one can. But it's also like there comes a certain point where it's willful ignorance and you're choosing not to know. You're choosing not to see these things for what they are. I think that this sheds light on how much access we have to communication. Like, you're living in Dallas. I'm living in New Orleans. And the cities are are struggling in a lot of the same ways and the populations look a a lot alike. Um, We're a predominantly black city, but we have, you know, white people and Latina people and people from all different immigrant statuses and, you know, all sorts of things. But like at the end of the day, I didn't know what was going on in Dallas until I had really close friends who were living in Dallas who also had a particularly vested interest in being involved in the local government. And I'm just wondering if that's part of what's missing from our conversation, especially as it relates to our generation and younger. And I feel like there's space and time now to have these conversations, especially in light of what's going on. Back when Josh and I were doing our bar politics project, which was, you know, we would do this live local daily show type thing once a month about local politics and once I started to see sort of the skeleton the blood the vein you know all that inner workings of the city of Dallas and I started looking into other cities like New Orleans and it was shockingly similar you know especially like how these cities develop where their priorities are you know both cities had uh pretty much exclusively pollution and sort of uh you know environmental degradation in non-white areas you know that's where they put all the manufacturing plants and stuff like that and so you know you like to think that the city you're living in is unique in those ways you know, and that they developed this history independently. But I mean, I think you're right. At this point, you can start to see once everyone's starting to articulate the needs of their communities, you start to see how similar they are in so many different ways, you know, and especially for those big cities, because none of these cities developed by accident, you know, it was very intentional this is what happened then, this is what happened then, this is what happened then. And you can see those little differences, and that's kind of what gives them their particular flavor. But I think that, you know, there's a rent crisis, there's an affordable housing crisis in pretty much every major city right now. You know, I think New Orleans, their particular flavor of it is the Airbnb stuff, right? Where people are taking out all the affordable housing and giving it to tourists temporarily because they can make a lot more money. Like, we don't have that in Dallas because who's going on vacation to Dallas? You know, we don't have a body of water running through the city. We don't have mountains. Dallas is very much a business city. That's its whole thing, you know. But we also, because it's a business city, the nature of our affordable housing crisis is everybody builds luxury apartments. And the only people who can afford luxury apartments are just that, uh, that young work yet that young professional class, right? That we're going to buy a house eventually crowd, but we're going to rent an apartment for now and they can afford to pay, you know, upwards of $2,000 a month, and that's for the cheap stuff, you know. And that kind of prices out everyone else, and it leads to some 
you know, pretty nasty gentrification in areas as well, which like there's some argument to be made that gentrification can help property owners in the area because it raises the property value by adding whiteness to the area, but also you're pricing people out of their homes. You know, you're pricing people out of the area. You're completely erasing the culture that has been going on there, but, you know, they're building those luxury apartments, you know, because there's an influx of people into Dallas, especially right now. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the nation, and they got to put people somewhere. Well, I feel like the reason that's happening, because that's also happening in New Orleans, right? Like our generation is moving in en masse to Raleigh, Austin, Dallas, New Orleans. And I feel like there's this, ma- Atlanta, I feel like there's this mass migration downward because people are getting priced out to an even greater extent in the cities that have already been heavy hitters for so many years, like New York and San Francisco. And the tech boom has obviously been its own problem. But like Los Angeles, I feel like there are people who are leaving those cities now because they can't even... They can't even afford the cheap stuff, even if they are a young working professional. Never mind a family. Right, right. No, and I, you know, that's the reason. There's a few reasons, but I'll never move to New York unless I'm completely financially stable, you know, because that level of struggle is just not worth it at this point. I agree. (laughs) You know, paying $2,000 a month to rinse a room of an apartment that's already incredibly small that just sounds miserable you know at a certain point you're like i need to be happy and to be happy i do need you know space i need solitude i need financial stability to a certain degree do you consider yourself a happy person (laughs) i'm so serious (laughs) uh not really I mean, it's kind of like you got to think of it in terms of like, well, what what does happiness mean? Like content? Yeah. Yeah. To a certain degree, like, you know, it comes in waves where you're like, man, I'm just not feeling this whole life thing right now. But then it'll just be months at a time when you're like, yeah, no, I'm feeling happy i'm feeling content i'm feeling like i'm doing the right thing you know i feel like i'm moving forward i feel like you know i'm eating well and doing all the things that make me happy but like on average not really no and and i i'm not settled to being an unhappy person or anything like that it's just i think lying to yourself is kind of dangerous you know and saying pretending that you are happy when you're not you know how so well there is some truth to the fake it till you make it philosophy for sure you know if you smile your body will release endorphins type of thing but if i don't address being unhappy then I won't figure out why it is that way. You know, if I pretend that I am happy, if I pretend that that unhappiness doesn't exist, then it, it's just, you know, lying to yourself and it's making it harder to diagnose, well, what what is the thing that I feel like I'm missing? What is the thing that I feel like will make me happy? What is the practice that will make me happy on a more regular basis you know what what can bring those averages up if you will and so you're in a constant state of self-reflection yeah pretty much and do you think you use art to do that or do you think that it's sort of one part of a bigger whole i think it helps to have art for sure you know when when you're kind of in a deep introspective state it helps to be able to just write it out you know and sort of be your own therapist if you will you know to really get down to what 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 is it that I'm feeling you know because if you can target that thing specifically then you have a better chance of overcoming whatever that personal obstacle is 
And so for sure, like, you know, art in general helps. Sometimes it just helps to take a big sheet of paper and some coloring pencils and not care and just make color on the page. You know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes that is, you know, not expressing the true nature of what you're feeling then, but to a certain degree, it is expressing exactly what you're feeling at that moment, you know, and you're just getting it out there, getting it out of your system. And then you can look back and say, oh, I like this. This is, this looks pretty cool, you know? Do you feel like the idea of optimism, realism, and pessimism are valid logical real i think it's important to see things realistically you know and to try to have some objectivity towards everything but kind of on that same notion it's important to realize that you probably have blind spots and so sometimes it doesn't really help to, you know, even if say the world is worthy of a pessimistic perspective, uh, you know, you for starters don't know that for sure. But secondly, what, what is, what does that actually do? What is to be gained from that? What is actionable from that perspective? And so, you know, I don't consider myself an optimist. I don't consider myself a pessimist. I just try to see things for what they are and, you know, as objectively as I can and have that understanding that I could be totally wrong, you know, but I don't want to delusion myself with this you know, particular philosophy one way or the other. And it's interesting because one of the professors we had in college, he would always distinguish between, he'd say, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. And that distinction makes sense because optimism is sort of like a blind faith in the world, but hopeful is more of, believing it can change but not necessarily believing that it will change you know hope is believing that it can be better but not just this you know blind idea that it will be better and i think that that's definitely useful and it's interesting because i read a bunch of uh martin luther king jr's writings over the last year and hope is one of his biggest things you know Hope is such a positive thing to have. You know, hope actually does mobilize people. It moves people. You know, Obama ran on hope and he won. You know, hope is such a powerful force that like, yeah, I'm definitely a hopeful person. I definitely believe in the power of hope, you know. And, and moreover, I, I believe in the danger of hopelessness, you know. For sure. So do you believe that your state of mind is a choice then? I think it's a combination of a lot of stuff. You know, I think that sometimes you can in the moment say, you know what, I'm feeling this way. I'm going to not feel this way. You know, I'm going to just completely change my perspective. Sometimes you can do that. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the internal chemistry of your body is playing its own narrative and you're like i'm sad and there's nothing i can do about it right Sometimes now except it's be just sad. a depressed tuesday yeah <laughs> yeah no that's uh you know and and i think that it is nice or at least from my experience it's nice to give your body that if it's just like you know if you're doing everything right if you're you know drinking your smoothies in the morning being active you know, doing everything you should be doing to not be depressed and you wake up on Tuesday and you're still depressed, sometimes it's cool to just watch Netflix for 10 hours straight, you know? Like, I'm obviously not a therapist. I'm not trying to give advice, but, like, I'm not going to beat myself up if 
that's what I decided to do that day. You know, if that's what my body's telling me I need, you know, sometimes you just need a depression nap. (laughs) (laughs) Depression kitty. Have you ever watched Big Mouth? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Depression kitty hit home with me hardcore. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's totally it. Uh-huh. That, is, that, is, that is exactly what it feels like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, they killed that one. Yeah, and sometimes you can, you can push depression kitty off of you, but sometimes she's really heavy. Yeah. No, and it's, you know, so I, I, the, the original question was if your state of mind is a choice, and I think that that's, you know, a very complicated multi-layered thing you know sometimes it's not about your mind sometimes it's about you know where your heart's at where your soul's at at the moment yeah so how do you how do you define success oh man i have no idea at this point you know i think growing up i was like middle class you know house solid job kids family food all that stuff now i don't know you know i think success for me right now would be to figure out what is the thing i need to be doing with my time and doing that thing to the best of my abilities i think that that would be success the issue is I don't know what that thing is, you know. I got a lot of different, you know, things going on in life, different passions, different, you know, directions I could go, things I could do. But, you know, just doing something that you should be doing and doing it well, you know, at least for me. Right, right. I love that. I think that's really beautiful. I think that there's a, a really pleasant straightforwardness and simplicity to that idea because, yeah, we definitely were raised by baby boomers who define success as these are all of the things that you must acquire in order to define success. And it's a super capitalistic definition because it's a lot about things. And I think that I'm finding more and more as I connect with more people who are around our age, whether they're a bit older, or a bit younger, they fall somewhere in our range. It's, it's about purpose and sense of self. Um, because that's something that older generations seem to be lacking. And that, that hasn't worked out so well. <laughs> so, so some self-reflection feels feels founded and grounded in our current reality. Um, And I think that's something that keeps us moving forward, honestly. Not to say that the hippies at Woodstock didn't do the same thing at some point, but they lost it along the way. And uh, I don't don't really want to lose that if I don't have to. No, because my opinion definitely used to be that, or it was more towards the idea that your merit as a human was contingent upon what you could do you know the skills you have the ability to contribute to society the you know i was very meritocratic about how i viewed people and what they should be doing and what their worth was and as i've gotten older and i i agree i hope that this sentiment doesn't go away this feeling doesn't go away But now I feel like the worth of someone is more in line with how they treat other people, you know? Like, I don't care where you work. I don't care how much you make. I don't care who you think you are. I just care if you're not being a dick to the person next to you, you know? Which seems like a low bar, but it's... I don't know, surprisingly not, I mean, on people's radars. Some some of the most successful people are just not nice to the people around them, you know, actively causing harm to the people around them. And that's just, it's just not right, you know? No, nor, nor is it necessary. No. No, that's not, 
It's not, it's just not necessary anymore. And I really, honestly, I am totally obsessed with Gen Z and their fire for human rights and equity. And I don't know, just their connectedness. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like millennials started with that, but then kind of got caught up in this social media craze and we kind of missed the, I don't know. I don't know what happened somewhere in the middle. Like, we're getting it back. We're kind of finding our collective voice again as a generation. But I feel like Gen Z has done a really good job of saying, no, plastic is bad. We're going to stop using it. Yeah, (laughs) no, no, no. And it's like, I I think it helps them to not have all the baggage that we have just in the same way it helps us to not have the baggage that the boomers had. You know, we haven't had, you know... 40 years of running the country, running the world as if it's our own trash bin, you know? But we have had, like, 10 years of it growing up. You know, we have had, you know, I've thrown plastic water bottles in the garbage at some point in my life, right? You know, but... Oh, sure, sure, like... The things change, and I, I think that it, one of the strengths of our generation is that we have adapted in a lot of ways, you know. We definitely have made changes. We have admitted to being wrong, but I, I definitely have a lot of faith in Gen Z, and I hate when people come in and knock the next generation. Like, that's so stupid. It's so unproductive, you know. No, it really is. It's, it's dishonest. No, I, I'd love to unite. I'd love to unite with them in, in this fire for... Even if it's just the environment alone. I mean, I think that I, I love that Gen Z, as at least in, in the American sense, is really queer and, you know, gender fluid and non-binary and, and exploring that and out with that and living in that at such a young age. And I think that that makes them open to new experiences and new thoughts and new ways of being um, in a way that we didn't have in the early nineties and in a way that is really just coming to light now in the public eye. Um, but I, but I also just love how much they care about the environment alone. Like besides the social justice issues and the human rights issues, which they still care about, like they really care about the planet. They're like, if we don't have a place to live, (laughs) the rest of this doesn't matter. And I think that they got a message that we, that we didn't, that we, that we didn't receive until much later. Yeah. No, cause we're, you know, in our late twenties now and like, we're, what's it called? You know, adults at this point. <laughs> what's it called? <laughs> but. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> yeah. And, and they still, you know, we, we did have. We had the 90s, which was so nice. You know, I'm not saying everything was perfect in the 90s. There was a lot of messed up stuff that was still going on that we just didn't know about. Oh, it was pretty great as a white kid, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, we weren't at war, you know. No one was talking about global warming yet because Al Gore hadn't lost or the election hadn't been stolen or that hadn't (laughs) gone down yet. Hashtag conspiracy theory, maybe, not really. <laughs> I don't know, that hanging Chad nonsense. Uh-huh. But, you know, so we, we, we did have that sort of respite from the harshness of reality, and, you know, they did not. They were born right. into a world that is just like, this is dying, this is dying. <laughs> on fire, literally on fire. Yeah, Australia's on fire, there's a plague and yeah. polar bears are going extinct. But you here's know, an like iPhone. Koalas, koalas are on fire. Here's an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> now you can watch koalas on fire. Right. Oh. So on that uplifting note, what are three words to describe yourself in a positive light? I'm going to use a compound word, which is f- funny as shit. Like, I'm <laughs> super fucking funny. That's really just, hard. yeah, no. So that's definitely a positive. Um, I got pretty good cheekbones, and I'm tall for sure. So those are things going for me. 
Those are those are words that describe <laughs> your physical attributes. Uh, no, no, I, uh, I, I say, uh, funny, smart, and empathetic. I definitely was not always empathetic by any means. It may sound weird, but my thoughts on it is that you have to learn empathy, or at least unlearn you know the suppression of empathy is I, I i think that when you start out you're very empathetic to those around you or at least you know you learn to be empathetic as a child early on but then you know there are situations where you're like well i shouldn't feel empathy for them i shouldn't feel empathy for them and that judgment comes in but you know then you have to relearn that like no there's a lot of pain out there. You know, a lot of people are in a lot of pain. Like, there is real suffering out there. And, like, you're not going to be in a position to do anything about it if you don't sort of adopt that pain yourself. And not necessarily, like, feel it on a regular basis, but just acknowledge it for what it is. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to add for our listeners before we close? I mean, you know, I think just washing your hands is important right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, keep your head up. I think that's, that's always sort of good advice. Cause like, you know, as someone who's always kind of up or down, it's like, you know, it does get better. It always does, you know. You know, when you're at rock bottom, the only way to go is the only way to go is up. So as long as you stop digging. Right, right, for sure. You know, but you know, just having that that hope, you know, that belief that it does get better, and just you know, keep putting keep putting one foot in front of the other, because. Yeah, that's all you can really do, and it does get better. And then it gets worse, and then it gets better again, you know. Life. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Stephen. I think you were the perfect guest for this COVID-19 week of quarantine. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. No, it's good talking. Thank you for having me on. Oh, my absolute pleasure. A huge thank you again to you, Stephen. I really enjoyed spending some time with you, even in a virtual capacity. In order to join the I Love You Insert Name community, all you have to do is insert your name in the blank space. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at ILY Insert Name, or on our website, ILYinsertName.com. Until later, just remember, you exist, you matter, and I love you.